What is the major force behind all this progress and its relationship with income inequality? Globalization represents a complex and multi-layered phenomenon. There are plenty of definitions of globalization, but most of them take into account increased openness to trade, migration, and capital flows, citizens of different countries communicating with each other and exchanging ideas, and governments working together in multiple fora to tackle political problems of global reach. It is extremely difficult to measure globalization. In spite of this difficulty, the COF Swiss Economic Institute has developed a unique empirical measure of globalization. The COF Globalization Index encompasses the economic, social, and political dimensions of globalization. Globalization in the economic, social, and political fields has been on the rise since the 1970s, and it saw a tremendous boost in the wake of the Cold War. See figure 1.11. In a time span of only three decades, globalization has decisively contributed to staggering economic improvement worldwide. Starting in 1990, the average global GDP per capita amounted to $7,185, measured in constant 2010 US dollars, while in 2016 it climbed to $10,468, see figure 1.12. Remarkably, the trend in income growth mimics the KOF Globalization Index scores during the whole period for which both datasets exist. In 1990, the KOF Globalization Index had a value of 43.93, while in 2016, the last year for which the calculation is available, it shot up to 61.7. This causal link, leading to higher medium-term growth rates through economic openness, was demonstrated on a sample of 137 countries enjoying economic growth. Economic, social, and political globalization are positively associated with economic growth, especially in developing countries, due to enhanced economic and information flows. When we compare the opening up of economies since 1990 and pair this with economic performance, we can also conclude that more globalized regions fared economically better. A case in point is the fate of Sub-Saharan Africa and East Asia. World KOF Globalization Index values and the corresponding values for Sub-Saharan Africa and East Asia and the Pacific regions have gone in opposite directions. While East Asia and the Pacific narrowed its relatively small gap with the world, Sub-Saharan Africa experienced an increase in this distance, regardless of the fact that both experienced rising absolute levels of globalization. Simply put, Sub-Saharan Africa has not run fast enough. This contrast is even starker if we focus our attention on the region's economic performance. The rapid takeoff of Asia, excluding the Middle East, overshadows meagre performance across Sub-Saharan Africa. See figure 1.13. During the same period, North America and Europe kept their absolute advantage due to higher initial baselines. Figure 1.14. However, there has been a global process of relative convergence with economies at the frontier, especially in Asia. Not only have we grown collectively, 
but we have also created a more equal distribution of income on a global scale. From the advent of the Industrial Revolution until the end of the Cold War, one can trace an era of great divergence between early industrialisers and the rest of the world, notwithstanding the remarkable progress made by Japan and Asia since World War II. Globalisation only accelerated in the early 1990s when the Information and Communication Technology, ICT, revolution radically lowered the cost of moving ideas. This launched globalization's next phase, which economist Richard Baldwin labels the second unbundling. This phase enabled the creation of global value chains spanning rich and poor countries alike. The existence of the original North-South divide, created by the first unbundling, that produced lower trade costs but also kept communication costs high, has been conducive to the coordination of complex activities at a distance, once the communication costs fell abruptly. A new dataset on inequality, compiled by the Bruegel think tank, presents a standard economic inequality metric called the Gini coefficient for the world as a whole. The Gini coefficient is the most common measure of inequality. It ranges theoretically from zero, when everyone has exactly the same income, to 100, or 1, when a single individual receives all the income of a society. According to this measure, global inequality decreased by 9.6 Gini points from about 66.9 in 1988 to 57.3 in 2016. Solely looking at the convergence of mean incomes across the globe, one would have observed an 11.2-point decline this was offset, however, by rising domestic inequality in big countries such as the US, China, Russia and the UK, as well as by relative population growth in poorer countries. Even after taking into account measures of income inequality that are more intuitive than the Gini coefficient, e.g. a measure which tries to assess how much pre-tax income ends up in the hands of the top 1%, the top 10%, the bottom 50% and the middle 40% of a population, we can come up with a very similar conclusion. If we rely on data provided by the World Inequality Database, we can trace the overall distribution of income within six geographical entities and the world as a whole. Figures 1.15 to 1.18. Globally, the share of the bottom 50% has slightly increased since 1990 while the share of the middle 40% experienced a major drop between 1988 and the early 2000s, when it staged a significant recovery up to 2016. On the other hand, there is an inverse relationship between the income share of the world's top 1% and top 10% and the share of the middle 40% for both periods in question. These numbers and trends do not invalidate the existence of opposite cases, such as the widening income gaps in North America and Europe. However, Europe has been much more successful in preventing rising income concentration at the top. This comes as no surprise, since in European countries there is a bigger difference between market and net income inequality, whereby net inequality is measured after taxes and social transfers. It is widely understood that the latter form of inequality is lower in Europe, but there is less awareness of the fact that market income inequalities, 
pre-tax and before social transfers in Europe are similar to those in the US. Reasonable levels of redistribution in the context of accountable, transparent and effective political institutions can definitely reconcile the goal of vibrant and innovative economies with that of higher social cohesion. Sweden and Finland are among the world's top 10 innovative economies, according to the Bloomberg Innovation Index, irrespective of their strong preference towards redistribution. Despite the fact that some parts of the world, such as the US, have grown their economies while concentrating income at the top, figure 1.20 shows that, globally, there is no pronounced trade-off between growth and inequality as postulated by the economist Arthur Oaken in his 1975 book Equality and Efficiency, The Big Trade-Off. If viewed through the prism of the second unbundling from the early 2000s, global growth has gone hand-in-hand with lower levels of income inequality. When it comes to wealth inequality, we have much less reliable data, especially if a detailed global calculation and comparison is desired there is a huge gap between those who possess wealth and those who don't. The World Inequality Report for 2018 shows that the share of the top 1% of wealth owners in China, Europe and the US increased from 28% in 1980 to 33% today, while the bottom 75% population's share has hovered around 10%. Nevertheless, this trend is only modestly present in the UK and France, while the largest wealth concentrations can be found in China and the US. By the same token, wealth inequality is not as important as income inequality for estimating the true well-being of an individual. Nowadays, wealth composition primarily reflects asset prices, especially the prices of stocks and real estate. Big swings in the wealth of the world's top billionaires don't usually represent changes in the amount of real, physical resources they command, and it doesn't prove that they are monopolising progress. This says far more about the presence of irrational expectations on the part of investors than about changes in economic fundamentals of the existing business model, such as a firm's growth potential. Oxfam studies regularly overhype wealth concentration estimates applying dubious assumptions of how to measure wealth and the corresponding distinction between rich and poor. Somebody holding a mortgage debt after buying a luxury condo in Miami will be considered poorer than a farmer in Malawi, which is absurd. Wealth inequality in advanced economies may indeed have deleterious consequences for political and financial stability, but there are myriad ways to mitigate those consequences. On the other hand, if we look at the bigger picture, then we have far more reason to hope. Too much focus on wealth inequality distracts policymakers and citizens from the fact that global economic growth has actually reduced global income inequality. There is no ironclad law between equality and growth, which are apparently locked in a zero-sum game. Our calculation, figure 1.19, demonstrates that the right dose of incentives, fostered by higher initial levels of inequality on the one hand, as well as innovation, knowledge dissemination, technology diffusion and healthy competition opened up by globalisation on the other, have brought about income convergence and increased the value of wealth for all.
All of this is not the result of some irresistible force at work, but rather the consequence of human choices in the domain of political economy. We will delve into this important issue in the next section.